of you do. Hey, we're in Matthew chapter 26 today in the message that has more than any other messages this summer really kicked my butt spiritually. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. We, every Sunday we'll open the Bible, teach the Bible. If you don't have one today, if you want one just to follow along, or if you don't have your own Bible, we've given away more than 500 just like this uh, in the last 22 months at our church. If you don't have a Bible, this one's yours. Put your name in it, take it home, start reading it. Start reading the book of Matthew. We'll read a little bit of it today. You can read more of it in the future. If you just forgot yours today, you can maybe look it up on your phone or on your tablet, uh, or you can read one of these and throw it on the table when you leave. But I started a year ago um, preparing our summer series for our church. Uh, we, uh, we, we took almost a year to look through the life of Jesus, to figure out what we wanted to teach on the life of Jesus. We're in the second to last week of a series that we're calling Bedtime Stories, um, Volume 2, The Greatest Stories in the Life of Jesus. Uh, and I actually, by the time I got to January, I had, um, you know, almost 30 messages on the life of Jesus to try to squeeze into 11 weeks. I'll tell you next week what I'm planning to do with the other 20 that, uh, that I haven't preached yet. But as we got near to spring break, I kind of narrowed down the 11 or 12 that I thought were necessary to teach on. If you and I were going to understand who Jesus was and understand how to live for Jesus, and this is the one that I have, um, this is the one probably that I have least looked forward to implementing in my own life. Uh, this is the one that has challenged my own spirit and my own soul the most. You have to understand, I do not see myself as an expert in Christianity. And I certainly am probably not the most spiritually mature person in this room. So when I study the Bible to preach and teach it, the first message is to myself. I'm not just thinking, what do the people need to hear? I'm saying, God, what are you saying to me? And then from what I learn and what I can understand and what I can research, then I, I come and try to teach you a little bit of what God has given me. But this message has been a tough one for me to handle. And if you look on the back of your bulletin, you, you're going to see just one word that summarizes our Bible study time today, and that word is sacrifice. And it's not a word that, um, it's not a word that I like to put into place in my life. It's not a word that I like to uh, practice in my life. But as we look at the life of Jesus and as we learn from the life of Jesus, maybe more today than any other message um, that we've had this summer, certainly for me the last 90 days, more today than any other message God has really shaped and molded me. And you know, sometimes God is very gentle with how he shapes you, and sometimes God punches you in the face. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, uh, you know, God has been very gentle with me in some areas, and in other areas, he's given me a right hook. Uh, and this has been one of the right hook areas that God has just, I mean, just kind of burst into my life and shown me some areas where I was really failing as a Christian, as a husband as a pastor, as a leader, and I want to share some of those with you today. So Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read through verses uh, 36 through 46, just to set the setting for those of you who may, may know a little bit about Christianity. Jesus, we celebrate at Christmas, his birth, we celebrate at Easter, his crucifixion, and his burial, and his raising from the dead. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. He's in a place called uh, Gethsemane. It was actually called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And if you've ever been to Israel, literally he was in a grove of olive trees. That's where he was. It wasn't really a, a garden. It was more like a forest, but a small forest of, of olive trees. And there are some trees there today that date back thousands of years, they believe. So perhaps there are some trees still standing that you can look at in the Garden of Gethsemane that may have been there this, this night in Scripture. There's a large rock that a church has been built around where 
the saints from thousands of years ago say that's where Jesus sweated like drops of blood um, on that rock, and you can go and touch it and take pictures of it. Uh, to me, one of the most special places in all of Israel is Gethsemane. And that's where we find Jesus tonight in the, uh, or today in a message that, um, that is stretching me as a Christian, and, and I hope it ministers to you and challenges you a little bit today as well. And here's what it says, starting in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, their names are James and John, if you want to make a note in the margin of your Bible, Peter, James, and John, along with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to him, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he prayed with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, not yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he left them. He went away once more, and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. And let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now I want you to keep your Bible open and on your lap to uh, Matthew chapter 26 because I want to show you some things today. I have told you um, that this message has challenged me. And I want to tell you this message has challenged my spiritual understanding of what it means to be a Christian. This message has challenged my spiritual understanding of what it means to follow God. This message has challenged my understanding of how God blesses someone who follows him and, and how God treats someone or what God allows someone to go through who's, who's really trying to do a really good job. And, and let me show you why, just right from the outset. If you have your Bible, I, I want to show you first, if you're taking notes, I want to show you the condition of Jesus' soul here. And I want to show you why I have been so challenged, not, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. I, I just want to point out to you what I feel is pointed out to us in Matthew chapter 26 that, that perhaps we miss or we don't think about because it's, it's Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. But the Bible says that everything in the Bible is written to teach us not just about Jesus, but about us. So let me show you the condition of Jesus' soul. And, and you can do two things. You can write down the condition of his soul as we go, or you can circle words. I like to circle words in my Bible. So I recommend to you, we're just going to read that you circle some words as we go. Look at the condition of Jesus' soul. Look at verse 37. He took Peter and the sons of Zebedee along with them, and he began to be sorrowful. Un circle that word or underline it or highlight it. And troubled. Circle that word troubled or underline it or highlight it. Verse 37 says he was sorrowful and he was troubled. Look at verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Circle those words, overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I want you to underline or highlight or circle that, those words, point of death. And, and, I, and I want you to, to think about this for a minute. Because we've all been there. We've all had a day, we've had an hour, we've had a week, we've had a month, we've had a year. Maybe this year has been that year for you where you're sitting here today and, and you're at the point of death. You're just thinking, I just don't know if I'm going to live through this. I just, I don't know if I'm going to make it. That's where Jesus was on, on this night. Look at, look at verse 39. 
Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. I want you to underline the words, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. We see Jesus here desiring to pass on God's will for him. We see Jesus, the son of God, who's asking God, if I don't have to do what you've said I have to do, I'd rather not do it. And then we see Jesus in verses 43 and 44. He went to his friends. He found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he, he left them. We see Jesus lonely. Now, if, if you're just keeping track of words, I, I want you to see the words on the screen. I want you to look at the condition of Jesus' soul because we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, and he's sorrowful, and he's troubled, and he's overwhelmed, and he's at the point of death. And he knows what God wants him to do, but he doesn't know if he has the energy to do that. And, and above all else, he finds himself really lonely. And I want you to look at that screen and realize Jesus is having a really bad day. Jesus is having a really bad hour. Jesus is having a really bad night that you can imagine was preceded by probably several stressful weeks, if not stressful months. And here's the question that I've been wrestling with really for 90 days as I've been studying Matthew chapter 26 because my, my, my views of God are getting flipped around a little bit. Here's the question I want to ask. Do these six traits of the soul sound like somebody who's in the middle of God's will for his or her life spiritually to you? I mean, if, is this what you have been taught that being in the center of God's will looks like in life? Is, is this how you imagine that you would feel spiritually if you were doing exactly what God wanted you to do, exactly when God wanted you to do it? I want you to put that list back up there again. I mean, is this how you imagine feeling on the inside when you're doing everything right and you know for sure you're exactly where God wants you, where you find yourself sorrowful and trouble and overwhelmed? And you just don't know if you're going to make it. And you'd rather pass on what God wants you to do and you feel lonely. I mean, is this where you imagine getting to spiritually when you are right where God wants you to be? Because I'll be honest, it is not where I ever imagined myself being. And when I get to these places, I struggle. And I struggle with where God is. And I struggle with what God is doing. And I struggle with what I'm supposed to be learning or what I have missed in previous learning that I should have picked up. You see, my, my theology, what I, have, what I have grown up learning about God is that when you really follow God well, this doesn't happen to you. You don't find yourself in these places when you're right where God wants you to be. Yet here's Jesus, right where God wants him to be. And look at the condition of his soul. This man... And I want you to think of yourself. So, some of you are 33-year-old men. Some of you are 34 or 35-year-old men. Some of you are 30, 31, 32. Jesus was a man just like we were. He's a 33-year-old man. And here was the condition of his soul. Sorrowful, troubled, overwhelmed, at the point of death, not sure if he could do what God was calling him to do, lonely on top of that. And you look at the condition of his soul and you think, at least I think, it's not really what I imagined serving God well. It's not what I imagined it looking like emotionally. So I've struggled a little bit in, in learning that you can be right in the middle of God's will for your life. You can be right in the middle of God's mission for your life. And you can really be hurting spiritually. And, and then I, you know, as I look at this and try to learn from Jesus, not only is my theology stretched, but all of a sudden my leadership and my life is stretched. 
Because I look at the condition of Jesus' soul and then I contrast that with the attitude of Jesus' heart and I think, man, like, I am so far from being like Jesus that I probably am least among all in being able to talk about Jesus. Because I want you to look at the attitude of his heart. And, and let me tell you how this works for me. When, I'm, when, when things are going well in my life, usually I treat everyone around me well. And when things are going really bad in my life, often I don't treat others in my life well. My, my, my attitude is usually a reflection of my soul. And when I'm doing great, my relationships are doing great. And when, when my soul is hurting, usually I'm not a great husband. And I'm not a great dad. And I'm not a great leader to the staff of this church. And I'm, I'm not a great pastor to the volunteers and the people of this church. Usually my attitude rises and falls with the condition of my soul, but not Jesus. Man, I look at Jesus, I see the condition of his soul, and then I look at the attitude of his heart. Look at verses 40 through 44, because we see Jesus, we would say, on the worst day of his or anyone's life, when we just look at the condition of their soul, yet we see him still gently leading and loving those around him. Verse 40, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And here's the angriest thing he does. Couldn't you men keep watch for me with one hour, he asked. Now, if you're my friend, and I'm here spiritually. And I say, I need you to pray with me because I don't know, like, I'm going to make it till tomorrow. And I, and I go pray and come back and find you sleeping. I'm probably going to kick you or I'm going to hit you or I'm going I'm to think a cuss word. I might even say a cuss word if I'm not doing really well spiritually. I'm going to be upset. I'm not going to say, art thou so tired that you could not pray with me? But that's what Jesus did. Jesus says, hey, guys, wake up. Man, couldn't you even give me an hour? But then he turns... He turns the attention from himself. He turns the attention of his own soul to the attention of those souls that he's leading. And, and he begins to teach them. He begins to train them. He begins to help them understand what these moments are like. So he asked Peter, man, can't you guys stay awake? But then he says, listen, verse 41, watch and pray so that you... Listen, I would say watch and pray because I am stressed. Watch and pray because I am going to get arrested. Watch and pray because Jesus says, this isn't about me, it's about you. Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. There's a spiritual lesson in this. Even though I'm having the worst day of my life, I'm going to give you a spiritual lesson because I love you and I understand that I lead you. Watch and, fall so that you, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 43. 42, he goes away a second time. He prays again, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were up, so he just let them sleep. I look at this, and I see that Jesus as my leader. You know, the word Christian means follower of Jesus. We're trying to become like Jesus. I see that Jesus doesn't allow the condition of his soul to affect the condition of his attitude towards others. And I think, man, I have such a long way to go spiritually. Because when my soul is good, my attitude is good. But when my soul is bad, I want to tell you, my attitude is usually really, really bad. And I, I look at Jesus and I think, man, I, I've got a lot to learn. And then I look at Romans 12, 18, which reminds me this, because it's kind of a tandem teaching with what we're learning of Jesus in Matthew 26. Romans 12, 18 says, listen, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So I look at Jesus in Matthew 26 and who he was and how he lived, even when things were hard. And then I see what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome, which he understood would be going to the church of the world. And I learned this spiritual truth about life when things are tough emotionally for us, you control your attitude and you're accountable for your attitude. 
That's what Jesus is teaching us in the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we need to learn a little bit about spiritual sacrifice, and a little bit of spiritual sacrifice is this. The momentary condition of your soul does not give you the right for your attitude to corrupt the eternal condition of someone else's soul. And Jesus is saying to us here, listen, even when you have a bad day, you sacrifice your momentary condition of your soul so that your attitude can minister to the condition of others' souls. And I really believe that God spoke this to me this week. You're never less like Jesus than when your bad day causes you to have a bad attitude towards someone else. Let me say that again. You're never less like Jesus than when your bad day causes you to treat someone else poorly. That's what I learned from Matthew chapter 26. And this has stretched what I know to be true spiritually. See, I got advice when, when we first started our church. And, and starting a church like from scratch with nothing and no one, is, it's a difficult and very stressful process. And we had lots of pastors in our life that were pouring in, into us in the early stages of planning a church. And one of the pastors said to us, and I, I'm sure this wasn't their theology, but it was a statement that we hung on to. They said, listen, just do it as long as it's fun, and when it's not fun anymore, go do something else. So I had a theology that said when you're in the middle of God's will and, and you're doing ministry God wants you to do, it's fun. And when it's not fun, maybe you're out of God's will and maybe you need to go do some more ministry. So this year in January through May, I was stretched as a leader. Our church was growing like crazy. We'd grown by more than 40%. We'd started a second service, and all of a sudden, we never had enough greeters. We never had enough parking people. We never had enough ushers. The nursery was always understaffed. The kids' ministry didn't have enough leaders. And I was catching all the flack as a leader that things are not as good as they used to be. And I remember saying to Danielle one Sunday, this isn't any fun anymore. And on June 2nd, we met with all the leaders of our church, and I told our leaders for about a month there, I thought, man, this isn't any fun anymore. Am I supposed to do something else? Could I possibly be in the center of God's will if this isn't fun anymore? And then I, I study Matthew 26, and it's like God puts a boot up my rear end and says, do, does it look like Jesus was having fun in the Garden of Gethsemane? Does that look like fun to you, Christian? Have you studied Matthew chapter 26? Son, your theology is messed up because nowhere in Scripture does it say that if it's fun, you're in the center of God's will, and if it's not, you need to go do something else. And I struggled, and I realized that what I needed to learn is that it was a matter of sacrifice. And sometimes when it's not fun, you do it anyway because it's worth it. That's the words that we used on June 2 when we talked about our church. It may not be fun, but it's worth it. And Jesus this night said, God, I really don't want to do this. But if it's worth it, I will. And we learn an important thing about sacrifice, even when the condition of our soul is really hurting. We also learn, secondly, and this is not a biblical truth that I like. As a matter of fact, I wrote this and rewrote this, and I phrased this three, three or four different ways because I didn't like the theology of it, but I believe it to be true biblically. Unfortunately, sometimes there is spiritual trouble within spiritual obedience. Sometimes doing exactly what God wants you to do leads you to a difficult place spiritually. And this, for me, again, it kind of messed with my mind spiritually. Because I've been taught the law of sowing and reaping, which is actually a Bible verse in Galatians chapter 6. And the law of sowing and reaping says this, if you do good, you'll get good. And if you do bad, you'll get bad. 
Nowhere in the law of sowing and reaping do you hear that sometimes if you do exactly what God wants you to do, it's not going to be good. And here I found myself spiritually saying, God, could it be possible that some of the things you have for me to do are no fun, and there really isn't a ton of good in them, but they are the right thing to do, and, and it's what you want me to do. And it came down to a matter of, yes, Christian, because you have to understand the theological principle of obedience. You know, the book of Psalms is an interesting book. And if you're not like every day right now reading your Bible, I, I'd give you a couple challenges. The, the book of Psalms has 150 chapters. Most of them are relatively short. Psalm 119 has 175 verses in it. That's a really long one. You probably don't want to tackle that one today. But if, if you read five Psalms a month, you'll read the book of Psalms. In, in, if you read five Psalms a day, you'll read the book of Psalms in a month. Um, if you will read one psalm a day, you'll almost finish all 150 before January 1. And that will take you sometimes less than 30 seconds a day. But here's what you'll read in the book of Psalms, because I found myself this week in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms says this. Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man who does good, cursed is the man who does bad. Psalm 2 to 149 say, I don't know if that's true. David will say, God, I did good, and, and like I felt cursed. And I watch this guy, and he could care less about you, and he looks blessed. There's psalms that say things like, um, God, I was tithing, and I lost my job. There, there are verses of, God, I raised my kids to know you, and then they got cancer. There are psalms that say things like, um, you know, God, I forgave my spouse when, when they had an affair, so my marriage would be held together. And instead of being repaid with them returning love for me, they just kept having more affairs, and my marriage fell apart. And the book of Psalms says lots of things like that, that God, I, I tried to do exactly what you said and I wasn't blessed, so how does, how does this work? In Psalm 150, so Psalm 1 says you're blessed if you do good, you're cursed if you do bad. Psalm 2 through 149 says, is that even true? And Psalm 150 says, actually, it's eternal blessing for doing earthly good and it's eternal cursing for doing earthly bad. And the psalmist says, I've got to have a bigger picture of life. But I have been struggling the last 90 days with the bigger picture of life because I don't like trouble in obedience. But that's what Jesus says. Look at Matthew chapter 26, 39. It says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Are you telling me there are things that God wills for us to do that are going to cause us trouble? The answer is yes. And here would be my question. Then shouldn't God give us a heads up? Right? Shouldn't God say, there are some things you're going to do spiritually that are going to be really hard. You have to really sacrifice. Shouldn't God tell us that? And my answer would be, he does if we read carefully enough. You see, four guys wrote books about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. The word gospel means good news. So basically, four biographers of Jesus set out to tell us the good news of who he was. They all tell stories from different perspectives. They all tell us about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but only John, who's in that, that, that inner circle. Remember, 11 left the upper room because Judas was gone, and they walked through. In John chapter 13, they're in the upper room, and John says, Jesus, wash your feet. John chapter 14, they got in a conflict about heaven and how to get there, and Thomas was like, I'm not sure how to get there, and Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, they're walking from the upper room in, through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Those of you who are in November in Israel with me in November, we'll, take, we'll go from the upper room to Gethsemane. It's maybe a 15-minute walk. And on the way, they're passing trees. And in John chapter 15, Jesus teaches about the vine and the branches and how all the trees work. In John chapter 16, 
He starts teaching about the things that they're going to encounter in life. And in John chapter 17, we read what we call the high priestly prayer, which tells us Matthew 26 says he left all the disciples, and he went and he prayed. John actually tells us like in depth what he said in John chapter 17. But right before he left the disciples, right after his little, his little lesson of what life would be like without him, he said this in John 16, 33. Right before he showed us how to live life in trouble, he said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, I, I've, I've been asking myself this spiritual question. If, if spiritual obedience can lead to trouble, why wouldn't Jesus tell us that? And God answered me and said, he did if you'll just open your eyes. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I've been trying to teach you how to study the Bible a little better, and Jesus said this in John 16, 33, I've told you these things. Every time you see words like that, you should say, what things? Like, that must be important. I've told you these things. What things? John chapter 16 is all about, Jesus says, I'm getting ready to leave, but you're going to make it spiritually. And all the disciples were freaked out, and they were like, how? So he taught them about the Holy Spirit. Now, inside your bulletin, I put this little card. Take this little card out. Because I want you to put this in your car or hang it in your bathroom or put it by your bedside or stick it in your Bible somewhere where you're going to see it. Because in two weeks, we'll start what I believe will be the most important teaching series that I give for many of you spiritually. We're going to teach about the supernatural aspects of Christianity. We're going to teach about the Holy Spirit, spiritual warfare. We're going to teach about God and angels and Satan and demons and what the Bible has to say about that. And, and the super, like the behind-the-scenes spiritual things of Christianity. And we're going to start in John chapter 16. Why? Because the disciples said, Jesus, how will we ever make it without you? And in John chapter 16, Jesus says, this is, this is how spiritual things work. And he said, I'm telling you these things for this reason. The world is going to be hard. And sometimes you're going to do the right thing and it's going to turn out wrong. And sometimes you're going to be in the perfect position, but the perfect position is going to be a bad position. And your soul is going to be overwhelmed. And Jesus never promised us we wouldn't have trouble. He just promised that he would be there in the midst of trouble. And then I read through the rest of the New Testament. And I hear what spiritual men said to guys that they were trying to help spiritually. And, and here's what I hear Paul say in, to the church at Philippi. Philippians 3.10, most of it is one of my favorite verses. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And I'm like, so do I. And Paul's like, and know the power of his resurrection. And I'm like, so do I. And he says, and participate in his sufferings. And I'm like, I don't really, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to do that one. You know? It's like, Paul, what are you saying? Why would you say that? that? What a stupid thing to say. I want to know Christ. Yes. And I want to be resurrected one day. Yes. And I want to suffer. That is crazy, right? But that's what he said. He told Timothy, his young apprentice in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. It's hard. Sacrifices involve Timothy. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He's teaching the world as he's being ready to be beheaded by Nero uh, in, in Rome. Forgive me, he ended up being crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Peter says this as he writes a letter to the world. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you can be overjoyed. You say, wait a minute. Not only am I supposed to anticipate difficulty, but then I'm supposed to undergo difficulty. 
And then I'm supposed to rejoice that I have undergone difficulty? And Peter says, exactly. Now you understand Christianity. And I read through this, and I study Matthew 26, and for me personally, I've, I've, I've just, like I'm scratching my head over my first 34, 35 years of Christianity, and, and here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid some Christians have replaced theology with mythology. I'm afraid that theology means the knowledge of God. It's what we have from the Bible. I'm, re I'm afraid that we have taken the knowledge of God, theology that we have from the Bible, and we have replaced it with mythology. We've, we've made up our own Christianity. And we're like, wait a minute, Christians don't suffer. As a matter of fact, if Christians do good, they'll always be blessed. And if Christians give, they'll always have money. And if Christians serve, never, and nothing will ever go wrong in their life. And if Christians read their Bible, they'll always have good days at work. And if, and if Christians pray before their meals, their kids will always love God and will never freak out and do anything crazy. And, and we, have, like, we have tried to make a copy of Christianity that's, that's much more like spam than ham. You know, I mean, it's like we've got this knockoff Christianity that fits in a can. And if you fry it up, maybe or maybe not, you can't tell. But people who really know ham, they look at it and they're like, that's not ham. And I'm looking at Christianity. The Christianity I just mentioned to you that all of you are like, yeah, amen, amen, amen. We just sang a song that says, my, you know, uh, my God, he will not delay. I don't know that that's true spiritually all the time. Because I've needed God on days he hasn't shown up. Like, no, maybe, sometimes God's a little later than I would need him to be. My God will come through always. What about when our kids die of disease or we lose our job? I mean, we sing songs that if not correctly understood are more mythology than theology. We've created a little God that serves us and when things go bad, it's, it's confusing to me and to people of faith. And I blame it on Christian leaders that get up with a big old smile on their face and just say, man, do good and God loves you and everything's gonna go awesome. If you just pray, God will give it to you. And I'm thinking... Dude, that's way more mythology than theology. Because I don't know that that's always true. You know how faithful Jeremiah was in ministry? You know we read 50 years of faithful ministry from Jeremiah. You know not one person came to faith in God in 50 years of ministry with Jeremiah? Stick that in your pipe and, and preach it at a church planning conference. You may plan a church and pastor it for 50 years that no one comes to. You, like, would you buy into that? We would say, no, that's not good theology. It's in the Bible. See, we've said if you follow God, everything will go okay. But in Gethsemane, man, things were not okay. Jesus says you're going to have trouble. You are going to lose your job. You are going to get sick. Your teenagers are going to go haywire. You're going to have medical problems, and you're going to have health problems, and, and you're just going to have relationship problems, and you may love your spouse as much as you want to, and you may have marriage problems, and, and things may go wrong, and you may live on the, in the greatest nation of the earth, but you might be in the city on a day of a terrorist attack that no one planned. I mean, things will go wrong, Jesus says. You will have trouble. But he said, I'll be there with you in that trouble. This morning I got a call from one of the greatest young gals in our church. Her name is Rachel. Her sister-in-law is, is dying of cancer much more slowly than the family would, uh, would like. And early this morning, she was rushed to the hospital. She was put in the hospital. Things went so quickly that she, she, got, she got put into a medically induced, induced coma, which she never really wanted to be in. But the doctor said, if we, if we do this, it can just save her. And she was bawling to me on the phone at 7 a.m. this morning saying, Christian, I just don't understand and I'm so angry and I don't know how this works. And, and I said, listen, Rachel, 
If there were an answer, I would give it to you. There's no answer on this side of heaven for why this is happening. You will carry that trouble to the throne of God, and one day you can ask him. He did not say you wouldn't have trouble here. He just said he'd be with you in it, in all of your unanswered questions. One day you can ask him, but I'm not going to make up an answer, and I'm not going to quote a verse. It doesn't look good, and I don't know what, but I'm going to pray that God's presence is with you, but I can't pray that God will give you an answer, because I don't know that that happens. I don't know that that's the promise. And then, you know, and she talked six months ago to, to a pastor that talked to her and said, it's just God's will that your sister's going to die. And she's a Christian, could that be true? And I said, no, that's not God's will as I understand it. God, God's will was that we would live forever with him. He created two people who were not intended to ever die, and we messed that up. That's not God's will that, that someone gets cancer at 32 and dies. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But that's the world we live in. So we've got to figure that out, man. I mean, we've got we to gotta figure out whether, whether we're following theology or mythology, whether we're making it up. Because if we don't, man, when the trouble comes, when moments of sacrifice must come, we're going to get freaked out, flipped out, we're going to quit. So Jesus shows us that sometimes there's trouble in obedience. Man, I don't like to say that. I don't like to write that. I don't even like to admit that, but I believe it's true because it's in Scripture. And then thirdly, man, and this is probably where the rubber hits the road. This is, this is what we'll learn for the next eight weeks starting August 25th where we see real sacrifice come into play in our lives. As Jesus said, the problem is you've got this tension between a willing spirit and flesh that is weak. You've got tension between I want to, but I can't. Do you know any addicts in your life who want to, but they can't? Do you know any new Christians in, in your life that want to, but they can't? Do you know any, anyone in your life who wants to, but they can't? You say, how does that work? Jesus says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. In Matthew 26, 41, he says, watch him pray. Here he is on the worst day of his life. He should be kicking his disciples for falling asleep. And instead, he's giving them some of the most important spiritual truth that they'll ever hear. Watch him pray so you don't fall into temptation. I know your spirit is willing. I get it. You've got a good heart, but your flesh is weak. In Galatians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over there. It's a powerful verse that I'll spend much more time in on the next eight weeks as we go through our supernatural series. But we see the Apostle Paul say something that... that it echoes Matthew chapter 26 a little bit, um, but he adds to it. And I'll be honest to you, Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 and 17, they upset me. They make me uncomfortable spiritually, but I believe them to be true. See, I, like you, I'm just beginning to learn how all this Christianity stuff and sacrifice works sometimes. So here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verses 16. Remember Jesus says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh. Jesus says there's two sides to every human being. There's the supernatural side, we call that the spirit. There's the natural side, we call that the flesh. We're going to learn in our supernatural series how to put those two together, but listen to what Paul says. So I say walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh, and they're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You say, what, what does that mean? In Romans 7, Paul says it this way, same lesson, phrased differently to a different group of people. Paul said, there are things that I know I should do, and I don't do those, and that really frustrates me. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. There are also things that I know I should not do anymore that, now that I'm a Christian. But I keep doing those because my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. So here's Paul. I want you to see. Paul says, I feel like a cursed man. Here he is. Paul says, I'm a Christian. I know I should read my Bible. Some of you have committed to read your Bible. Your spirit is willing to read the Bible through. But like, you just don't have time. 
You just have not been able to follow through on that commitment. So you always feel bad spiritually because you committed to do something spiritually, but you're not able to do it. Your spirit wanted to, but your flesh couldn't follow through. At the same time, you used to have things that your flesh loved that now you understand are sinful. So now when you go back and do those, for a moment or two you love them, but now you feel bad because you know you're not supposed to do them anymore. So it's like the new stuff I want to do, I can't do. The old stuff I used to love, like I feel bad when I do that, like my life stinks, right? I mean, that's where Paul is. He's like, I can't spiritually, I'm not making it. I can't just go backwards because I know I'm not supposed to do that anymore. And Paul said, I feel cursed because of the tension between my spirit and my flesh. There's sin I don't want to do anymore, but I do that and it makes me feel bad. There's new habits I know I need to start and I'm trying, but then I fail and I, I feel bad. And there are things that, I, a lot of recreation I used to love to do, but, but now I don't really have as much time to do those anymore. Now that I'm a Christian, my sleep schedule's different and how I spend my money's different, how I spend my time is different. And we realize that there's this sacrifice component built into Christianity. And when I thought about it this week, this thought hit me, oh my goodness, Christianity without sacrifice might not be Christianity. Think about that for a minute. As I read it from God's perspective, and I looked at Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, and I learned that I'm a follower of Jesus, and then I hear what Paul said, and I hear what Peter said, I thought, oh my gosh, Christianity without sacrifice, like that's not really Christianity. So built into the fabric and the DNA of following Jesus is sacrifice. And here's the spiritual truth that I came to in the last 90 days that I've been wrestling with so much. If we align our lives to live on mission with God, we have to sacrifice. If we align our lives to live on mission with God, we have to sacrifice. It's part of the commitment. And what's so interesting is Jesus waited three years to tell the disciples this. I mean, he wanted, to, he wanted to bless them. He wanted to love them. He wanted them to really be all in with him relationally. But before he left, he said, you need to know. He waited three years to tell them, but when he told them, he made it clear, you're going to have to sacrifice. You know, when you think about what Christianity has meant to you, those of you who maybe came into our church and you had never done the Christian thing before and then you gave your life to Jesus and now you're kind of full-blown... You probably wouldn't have, if it was presented to you this way, if it was presented that, listen, we want you to come to our church, we want you to follow Jesus, but it's going to cost you a lot. Some of you would have said, I don't have a lot. If it was presented to you before you ever came to this church that, that getting committed to Sundays and get a, getting committed to serving and getting committed to going to a small group and getting committed to like try to maybe read your Bible every day or pray a little bit or, or listen to Christian radio. Like if you just started adding up things, if we said getting engaged at our church and really living for Jesus is probably going to cost you between five to eight hours a week, sacrifice to really live for you, you would have said, I don't have an extra day. Like that's a full work day. You said, I don't have that in my life. I, 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 don't ha I, I don't have an hour in my day to work out, much less read the Bible. Are you kidding me? Um, you know, I, I don't have my Sunday right now to clean my house. And you want me to give half my Sunday to, 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 to come to church? I, I don't get up at 6.30 to my, watch my favorite TV show. And you want me to be at church at 6 to set up chairs? Like, are you crazy? But, but now you're doing it and you look back and you think, you know what? I've not, I would not be able to live on the journey that I'm living on without some type of... Of sacrifice.
And maybe it just clicked today, but the spiritual truth is, if you're going to be on mission with God, you have to sacrifice. And it's not always fun. I was praying today in the back with one of my good friends who I've been, we've kind of had a prayer partnership in life for the last four or five years. I married him uh, to his new bride last year. And he was doing a setup this morning. He was on our campus support team, which meant he was here about 6.20. And I was talking to him about our message and, and the things we were going to talk about and what I, what I wanted to pray got pressed into our people. And I, and I made this statement. I said, if we don't get it into the DNA of our church now, that Christianity means sacrifice. Like, it could be broken for generations to come. Like, if we don't teach our people right now that Christianity demands sacrifice... They won't help new Christians understand that in the future. And when someone comes early and says to someone, why do we have to get up so early? If we haven't taught them to say, because Christianity demands sacrifice, and this is what we do, they might say, I don't know, let's both quit. You know, or if, we, if somebody says, well, why do we have to pull stupid trailers? Why can't we just buy a building? Because planning a church takes a lot of financial resources. This is just part of the game. Well, why, why do I have to get here to make coffee? If we don't teach people now to have a DNA of sacrifice, our church going forward will not have it. And he started laughing, and he said, you know, this morning um, I was on my way over. He lives in Kansas. This is like a 35-minute drive for him to get here at 6.20 a.m. And he said, you know, I, as I was driving this morning, he said, I thought, why am I doing this? Do they even need me this morning? Like, can't they do this without me? And he said, I kind of I had a bad attitude. But he said, I'm beginning to realize now it's just, I guess it's just part of the sacrifice of living for Jesus. And he said, it, it will change the way I think. I got this note. Someone left this note for me. They didn't sign their name to it. This was on my table after the first service. Christian, great message. I learned a lot. Was very convicted, but reassured that sometimes my attitude that occasionally pops up when serving just means that I'm learning to sacrifice. I said just this week that I didn't want to host a small group anymore because they break stuff. Good job. I said in the early service. Small group, you know, I said in the early service, you're going to host a small group, they're going to come in, they're going to spill stuff on your carpet, and they're going to break stuff in your house. Uh, you serve early, you're going to have to get up early on Sunday than most of your friends. You go to this church, you'll probably stay a little later in the afternoon than you will at most other churches. You might have a baby throw up on you if you rock it in the nursery, and you may have some little kid that you have to chase around the block because you're trying to work in children's ministry. All those little things that you think, why am I doing this? Stop and say, because Christianity demands sacrifice. And it's... It's just, it's just part of the deal. Man, I was so convicted this week in my garage. I was reading Daniel, the book of Daniel. I was studying it about two weeks ago. And God gave me this verse for this message. And I've struggled with this verse just in my heart spiritually. In Daniel chapter 3, if you've heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are three guys who get thrown into a fiery furnace, and they survive. It's quite miraculous. Um, they're supposed to bow down to a god that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had built, and they didn't. So they got thrown in this fiery furnace. They said, listen, dude, you can kill us if you want, but, like, we have to serve God. It's our only option. And they got thrown in. They got brought out. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, that's unbelievable. You're still alive. And Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him violating the king's command, and they yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Write the word yield down on your sermon notes. Because I've been, I've been focusing on this verse. I've had it written on my whiteboard for almost three weeks in preparation for today. And I was on the phone with someone this week who was, um, who was going through a difficult time. And I was trying to help them understand that it wasn't God's fault. 
and, and I was talking them through the theology that I, that I have learned and that I believe in, that God is good um, and that God doesn't do bad things. And I, and, I, and I basically said a statement something like this. Listen, man, when great things happen, God be praised. But when bad things happen, like, that's not on God. And I pulled in our garage and I thought, man, God's got a pretty good gig. And just in a moment of, in a moment of spiritual, spiritual contemplation, you've got you to gotta understand, I'm growing like you. I thought, man, God's got a pretty good gig. Like, he gets credit for everything good. And he doesn't get blamed for anything bad. If our theology, I mean, like, like, what a great job. If it goes well, you get all the praise. If it goes bad, no one ever blames you. I thought, what a, what a great job. And I thought about this word yield. And I thought, you know, it, have you ever pulled onto a highway on the on-ramp and had someone going just the wrong speed for you? And you either have to, like, floor it and cut around them, or you had to hit your brakes and let them go first. You know, and some of you are angry drivers, and you floor it, and you cut in front of them like my wife does every now and then. And some of you are, are like me, and you're, you're a little, you try to be a little more patient. You hit your brakes, but then you kind of, you're, you're, um, you're quoting bad Bible verses about them under your breath as you pull in behind them. I don't like to stop and let the other car go, go first. And I thought, man, God's got a pretty good gig set up. Because, like, he's basically got this system set up where we always stop and let him go first. And then I started read Matthew 26, and God said, Christian man, you're so way off spiritually. See, you don't understand that in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, Jesus as God had the option to go first and leave humanity behind. But in Gethsemane, he hit the brake, and he let the whole of human history go by, and he let all of their sin go by, and he let all of their rebellion go by, and on that day, he stopped. And he let us go first so that he could go to the cross. And he said, Christian, I don't have the good gig. You have the good gig. Because everything you've ever done, I have forgiven. And all the rebellion in your life, I love you anyway. And one day you're going to inherit all the eternal rewards, not because you stopped and let me go first, but because I stopped and put you first. Now, if you understand that and you want to follow me, then get behind me. Because I stopped and let you go by so that one day you'd be mature enough to pull over and wait for me to speed up and pass you, and then you'll get right in line and follow my plan, my will for your life, which includes, young man, sacrificing, not just some of the time, sometimes a lot of the time, which includes even when your spirit is totally overwhelmed, not having a bad attitude to other people in your life, which includes some mornings waking up before you want to, which includes people spilling stuff on your carpet, which includes difficult moments. And I wish those didn't have to happen, but here's my promise. I'll be there with you. If you'll stay close to me, I'll be there with you when they happen, and you'll learn sacrifice. And by learning sacrifice, you'll, you'll learn more about me, and then you'll be ready to, to be used in a radical way. So today, if you learn anything, you need to learn sacrifice as part of the gig. And when you walk out of here, you don't have to follow Jesus. But if you choose to, sacrifice is part of the gig. We have a pretty good gig. And that Jesus let our lives run crazy. And then he died to forgive us of our sin to set us back on the straight path. Man, what a good God we serve because of the sacrifice he made in Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane.